welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. As always, we are your hosts, myself, Adam Jezorski. And Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back once again. And today, we're talking about joining the Illuminati, <laughs> at least from a paleo-limnology perspective. From a distance. <laughs> <laughs> and what we're getting at today is really the whole role of uh, scientific societies um, and meetings and associations um, and uh, the importance of these groups and events uh, to, I guess, in a very general sense, but then also to paleolimnologists in particular. Yeah, so less uh, secret meetings and black robes and dungeon layers, but uh, a very important part of, uh, the, I guess, the way in which science is done historically and uh, and I think still fairly relevant uh, in the modern scientific environment, uh, though different than maybe historically they have been. Yeah, and so just to give a little bit of background, when we talk about uh, historically, it being like one of, the, one of the first questions is why would these societies be formed in the first place? And basically, I think a lot of the... Um, idea was just groups of like-minded people getting together to pursue things that they were interested in. If you're talking about learned societies in general, uh, the, the oldest ones are not necessarily scientific ones, but historically we're going to you know, use the Royal Society of the United Kingdom as a uh, starting point. So that would have been founded in 1660. Uh, that was a long time ago. My uh, goodness. Yeah. They would have been wearing robes and meeting oh. in the basement. And play. <laughs> yeah, well, it was powdered wigs time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, with with some pretty illustrious uh, presidents over that intervening 400 years almost. Yeah, well, I, I remember uh, as a kid growing up in England, um, I don't remember which uh, note uh, Newton would have been on. Uh, it might, might have been the 50-pound note. I'd have to double-check that up. Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, it wasn't one I saw very often, but I definitely <laughs> yeah. remembered of him as the guy with the really awesome hair. Right. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a, you know, crushing blow when I realized, no, he probably had a shaved head and I was just a week, a wig. <laughs> we could always hope. <laughs> Due to the fleas. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> um, but, but in general, the idea being that, uh, the society, the Royal Society, uh, originally as a way of getting together, bringing scientific discussion to sort of out of the university settings to have academics from all different areas come together either physically or in writing to promote uh, excellence in science and benefit humanity which is their official um what is it, uh, statement yes or like their I don't know. It's raison d'etre raison d'etre their aspirational statement that they uh greet you with on their landing page and the Royal Society was followed by other national societies. And, of course, we have a strong bias to uh, uh, Canada, and um, which it was formed in 1882, so much later, but in many ways patterned over the, uh, Royal so the original Royal Society, um, although I believe it has a broader scope where it um, includes uh, the arts as well, whereas as the, different, the Royal uh, Society of London yeah. is... Um, you know, purely science. Mm -hmm. 
and well, at some point, I'm sure we'll get him on the podcast, uh, John Small, who's uh, was our PhD supervisors and Adam's boss at the moment, is the uh, president of the Academy of Sciences within the Royal Society of Canada currently. So that's something we could uh, discuss with him because that's a fairly new role. I haven't seen him a great deal since he took on that role personally. So that would be something uh, that we could always get his opinion on from the inside. Yeah, no, definitely something to ask him about down the road. And then moving beyond the uh, national society level where all different sciences, whether they be astronomy or chemistry or biology or any other discipline, was uh, kept together at the national level, at the country level, uh, there's a push for different scientific disciplines to identify and come together as a group in order to uh, probably have a little bit more uh, common discussion in that way. You're going to get a lot more uh, similarities in what you're talking about if it's all chemists who come together as opposed to some people from all different disciplines. And therefore, from a paleolimnology perspective, for the Core Ideas podcast, the discipline or the, uh, sorry, the society that we would most strongly align with would be the International Paleolimnology Association. And, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more uh, later on, but, um, you know, even within the, that one association, uh, the level or the breadth of interest is incredibly broad. And, um, but there are also many other societies that would be potentially of interest uh, to a, you know, a new paleolimnologist. Um and then uh, within North America, um, like again, showing our own biases and our own affiliations, um, some of the key ones would be uh, the Society of Canadian Limnologists, so broadening out to limnology in general as opposed to just paleolimnology. Um, and then, which is a, I guess, a daughter association of the Society of International Limnology. It is the Canadian branch of that. It's not a formal, we'll talk about this a little uh, later on because I'm on the executive of SCL. Uh, it's no longer a formal connection because we've incorporated as a society, um, but it is still um, has that historical tie. Uh, and some others that we commonly and that uh, paleolimnologists would, would find themselves uh visiting or presenting at their meetings or being members of would be things like the uh, Canadian Conference for Fisheries Research, which is a, actually a meeting, not a society in the same way, but it does have a similar sort of mandate and ideas behind it. Uh, the North American Lake Management Society, NALMS. Uh, the international, what, what's IAGLER stand for? The spot here <laughs> international Furious association Googling of great lakes research i believe uh, <laughs> uh, and then there are lots of others some that are specific to the indicator that you're studying so it might be related to the benthos or diatoms or cladocerans uh, some related to the time period that you're interested in so in a canadian context we have the canadian quaternary association so people studying lake sediment lake changes over the last two million years would fall within that 
There's an international quaternary association. There's a, uh, all different associations that are temporally constrained in that, that framework. There are pollen specific societies. There's just a plethora of different groupings of academics and many people belong to many of these scientific societies. Yeah. And, and various subsets. Like basically I, I think the, uh, number of people out there that are members of all of the societies that we have listed would be virtually zero. There's going to be some picking and choosing depending on what your particular interests are and what your expertise is and where you're based regionally. And, um, yeah, and so it's all going to be very, very specific. But a key thing at the beginning stages of graduate studies is learning what is out there. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it, it's also the case probably that uh, some people's membership in these uh, societies sort of waxes and wanes. You, It's not ideal. So, you know, the idea would be you would stick to a society, you would continue to pay your membership dues if there are such things or continue to renew your membership. But other times, you know, there's a lot of them and that can add up quite quickly. So perhaps uh, your research you're working on now is more focused on connections to modern day limnology. So you're a member of SCL, whereas in the future, you may revert to doing more pollen based work or um, you identify as a geographer more specifically because you change departments and you want to go to the Association of American Geographers meeting. So you join AAG. Uh, or AGU or any of those different societies. So there's lots of potential for being a member of different societies at different time periods. And I, I agree, no one maintains membership in 30 different, uh, 30 different societies. That would be cost prohibitive. Your email would probably explode from all of the lists you'd be on and, uh, and not really the point of, of the societies. Okay, so having listed off a whole bunch of societies, uh, but a far from exhaustive list that would be potentially relevant to a, uh, you know, a paleolimnologist within uh, North America. Um, in addition to the differences uh, in like subdisciplines and indicators and those kind of things, um, there are also a breadth of differences of purposes behind these societies or meetings or conferences or associations um and it comes down you know on very broad strokes is their principal interest advocacy like um in a broad and like you know bringing benefits to all of humanity versus uh the production of a journal so a lot of societies are associated with a specific journal and has a journal of the society um one or more than one in some cases for the big ones yeah yeah so um like the Royal Society we mentioned earlier, um, would have... We the, looked it up, has nine journals associated with them. Some of them newer and kind of online open access ones, but some of them that are have been published for hundreds, hundreds of, of years. years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, um, ASLO, so the American Society of Limnology and uh, Oceanography, um, their journal... I think, didn't they change their name so it's not American anymore? I think they, they changed did. it so that it's oh, man, the, gonna... the uh, I don't even remember what it is. It's not American anymore, but it is the same acronym. Yep. No, you're right. I do remember that as being a, it's probably not that recent, but in my brain, uh, um, 
that's oh, still so, oh, of course, it's one of those things sure. you don't say the acronym in full very often. So it's yeah, in there. It's the Skydome example for our Canadian <laughs> listeners. Rogers the Air Center. Canada Center. Yeah, exactly. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, I'm totally lost my track of thought here. Yeah. ASLA, whatever that stands for. It's still limnology and oceanography, primarily with a North American perspective, but uh, also taking in the international audience produces uh, limnology and oceanography, the journal, and also, I believe, LNO Letters, uh, which is a second journal that's more recent to them. Uh, we mentioned SIL, the Society of International Limnology, uh, which is the international community of limnologists that SEL, the Canadian uh, subgroup is part of, uh, at least um, tangentially. They produce Inland Waters as their society journal. Um, the Royal Society of Canada um, produces uh, the journal Facets. I think this is maybe a case where they don't actually produce it. It is, it is considered, though, the their the, journal, their journal, the the link journal, and that may only be for the sciences group okay. of it. Okay. Um, because facets is also produced by the Canadian Science Publishing uh, Group, so there's a linkage there between those different groups. But CSP produces a bunch of journals like CJFAS and some others. But facets is linked as the Royal Society Journal for Canada for I believe sciences. Okay, and then uh, last one in the list that I had in front of me um, will be. The North American Lake Management Lake Management Society uh, produces lake and reservoir management, um, but there are many others. Yeah, AGU has five or six different journals at least. The American Geophysical Union, uh, which gets a lot of paleolimnologists, uh, and yeah, so that that is a common uh, purpose for a scientific society. It may not be the only one. It may not even be the the main one. Uh, but historically, it has been a very important one because it would be where you would collect all of the proceedings from the meetings that uh, happened when scientists came together to discuss their findings uh, and then put them into a record that could be published and then referred to. And that kind of segues into another real purpose behind many of these societies and associations is be to conduct meetings. So to have the various membership come together, you know, on an annual or um, biannual kind of basis to have, you know, share their work uh, with the membership. Um, and some of the societies that we listed off earlier, like the meeting is largely the purpose of the group existing in the first place. So um, uh, CCFFR would be an example of that. Yeah, they are the meeting. That is their entire uh, raison d'etre, um, so much so that the membership uh, is, there's no sort of membership fees to be paid. It is the registration for the conference and the members are whoever went to the conference in that given year, which is very different from uh, all of the other ones that I'm aware of. Uh, but for many, I would say, I don't know if you would agree, but I would say for most scientific societies, the meeting is the key thing that links people together and keeps it as a sort of the purpose of being a society. Journals, yeah, I think, historically have been part of that, but it's become less um, common as many of them become published by large publication houses. They get folded into the publication fold of other groups. 
Not many societies continue to in-house publish their own journals, though there are exceptions, of course. Uh, and because of that, the meeting really is the key take-home reason for a lot of people continuing to be uh, strongly linked to scientific society. Yeah, and I, unless I have my history wrong, I think you know the a key example of this would be the IPA, right? That the meeting, the association basically grew out of the meetings and to provide institutional memory so that the meetings could keep on going and it'd be less of a seat of the pants operation of like having interested people driving forward. Like, yes, we'll do this again in three years or whatever it is. And we promise. And then it was more a case of, okay, I've been doing this for a while. You know, it, there are difficulties associated with that. Let's formalize things. And that sure. ends up becoming the association. Yeah. To provide support for whoever the local organizers are, sometimes financial support, sometimes logistical support, often both uh, in passing resources from the previous meeting because often we can talk about this in a minute often good scientific meetings and i don't mean good in terms of the quality of the science or the organizers just sometimes just lucky uh and depending on where they're even located uh, do make money uh there is a surplus of funds at the end of the meeting if they're well sponsored and they have a lot of attendees more than they pay out and for many of those societies that uh, money gets passed on to the next meeting among other things and having that executive knowledge at the association or society level to allow that transfer to occur because oftentimes if a meeting's another three years away they're not going to the local organizers aren't going to have bank accounts and things like that set up in order to take that material when the last meeting closes it gives that kind of uh transitionary period to ensure that everything transitions smoothly, even if it's just the meeting itself that's being kind of held together uh, as part of the society. Yeah, and you kind of like jumped ahead of me a little bit here, but I was going to like, we're going to tap into your experience here as a member of an executive of a society, as mentioned, Josh, um, as part of uh, the executive of SCL. And, you know, just putting them in the hot seat for a second, like, Definitely a question I was thinking to myself as a brand new graduate student is when, you know, membership fees come around is like, why am I giving them money? Shouldn't they be giving me money to do this stuff? I'm broke. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, for SCL, I'm the secretary treasurer. So I'm literally the person asking for the money or the person you'll send it to uh, if you decide to join. And that's, I think that's a really reasonable question. And it, it for Someone who has been a member for 20 years, you know, they have that linkage to the society. They identify as members of whatever that is, SEL, AGU, INQUA, whatever it is. Um, and for them, it, it's not kind of mentally hard to get over that hurdle that you should pay the $70 every two years or whatever it is to be a member. Uh, and they're probably in a position financially where that's easier. They likely have a full-time job. Um, but for the new student, it, it may not seem so obvious. And I think it's still valuable. So one thing I would say is that as far as I know, I've never seen a society that didn't have lower dues for the students. But it still can be a decent amount of money depending on what society it is. Uh, and the question of why should you give them money 
when maybe they should be giving me money. It, it may not be one or the other. A lot of times that money goes into student bursaries and travel and supporting students. So at SEL, that is in our uh, incorporation documents, one of our mandates is to support students in both the, un, the graduate and the postdoctoral level with travel funds. So I don't, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but you know, we, we, of the money we bring in a year, I would say probably a third of it goes to student travel for the meeting, uh, in that year. And so that's a, a big part of what we do with our money and not every society is the same. Um, but a lot of them do have as a core mandate to support students. And that is far more than the student dues are going to be in a year. So that money is basically being transferred from, it's like crowdfunding from the more senior people in the society and being transferred to the students. Um, but there are other reasons that scientific societies exist. Uh, it doesn't seem as popular maybe for some uh at the beginning of their career, but the mailing lists that are maintained by the society. So we have a website, every society has one and there's a newsletter and mailing list is a good way to learn about things that are going on in the society. A uh, good way to see job advertising. That's one of the things that we charge fairly small amounts for ads to um, academic institutions, but also consulting and government and all those different jobs. So there are a, a few smaller things that um, may kind of be sent out during a year that uh, keep you connected to the society and to the members of the society. It's about in sometimes uh, bridging with different people that you may not know locally. Some societies, now we don't have this as ours, but some societies membership gives you a discount at the annual meeting or a discount on publication in the journal. So that's a fairly obvious one for the grad student that may not be coming out of pocket, but that's not always the case. So for Inland, for uh, SIL, uh, you get, as a, do, as a member, you get uh, access to Inland Waters and you get uh, to publish for free as opposed to having to pay if you're not a member. So that, that's a, a few things. Any that I've missed that maybe you think of? Uh, not really. Like I was just thinking of, uh, you know, my first time at the SCL meeting, walking past the, uh, membership table. And, uh, I think whoever was doing the pitch then, uh, is probably listening to the, will probably listen to the show. And it wasn't a very detailed pitch. I don't think it'd be just something of, I would have asked him like a smart ass, like, why should I be a member <laughs> of SCL? And he probably said something to the effect of, just because give me the money. <laughs> uh, it wasn't for the the merch, the the, the uh, branded merchandise like the mugs and uh, and uh, t shirts and stuff. No, or uh, maybe it was, but I don't. I don't think I would have actually uh, picked any. I don't. I have no SCL merchandise. Oh no! Well, I, I have a box of t shirts here. I can send you one. Uh, <laughs> I like t shirts, um, and, and this is all from my perspective. So some other organizations. Uh, maybe very different. There are large organizations, l massive scientific societies that have far more um, kind of uh, benefits that you can buy into. So like discounted insurance rates and those kind of things that come from uh, the huge advocacy power that large groupings can provide. 
So there is a huge range from almost nothing in terms of tangible take-home money benefits through to uh, very large ones. But in general, it's about being part of the community. And there are societies, including the International Paleo uh, Association, that don't charge dues. Uh, And because of that, um, whether students were to get a, a discount on travel would be much more variable across different meeting years and would be entirely related to sponsorship and the cost at that location and those kind of things. So if there's bursaries for student travel, that would be not something that's sort of inherently guaranteed, not guaranteed in terms of that you're going to get it, but built into every meeting as we do. It would fluctuate based on how well the last meeting went. Exactly. It would fluctuate much more uh, and really depend on the specific details. So there are trade-offs in that sense. And in general, uh, I think the idea of having fairly low dues for students and early career um, members are very, is quite common. So for those Canadian um, paleolimnology uh, students and others as well, uh, you can you can visit our website and sign up. <laughs> there you go. Oh, which website? Oh, it's not, uh, not so- the Core Ideas website. No, no, no. <laughs> you can probably find the link through there through uh, socanlimnol.ca, Society of Canadian Limnology. Plugging away, plugging away. Yep, I got to, I got to do it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the one thing I, I, I might take a minute to talk about that we didn't talk a ton about, and it's not something I have a ton of uh, experience with, but the role of advocacy in society, scientific society. So um, that can take a lot of forms, I think. Uh, and there's a little bit of history of that at SCL uh, and other groups like that. So advocacy can be kind of continuous and ongoing and part of the, I don't want to say lobbying because it's not necessarily true lobbying, but the idea that they are pushing for different things. So many scientific societies have a really strong role in advocating for re, uh, federal for government research funds being allocated to science. So that's a really important, uh, wherever you are in the world, that's a really important uh, thing for governments to continue to provide funding for science, obviously. And having groups of scientists come together with a single voice and a single mandate to try and improve that and, and make sure that that continues and hopefully grows is really, really important. And then there are other occasions. Just just, uh, bouncing in there for a second. Um, So yeah, so this is where my political knowledge breaks down and whether or not what the equivalent term of lobbying is in Canada. I think, is that an American term where you're a registered lobbyist? I don't think you're a registered lobbyist. I'm not sure we have a registration for our lobbies, but we do have lobbying. Yep. Um, and, you know, acting as a special interest group, um, you know, at what level can it occur? Like, can you call up Justin Trudeau and say, hey, I'm the uh, secretary treasurer of the Society of Canadian Monologists. I need a meeting. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, as a Canadian citizen, I can call him up. I can be pretty certain that he would want not answer the phone, even were there not a pandemic <laughs> in the world. And two, that meeting would not get scheduled. Um, but... 
uh, at, at other levels, there are the case. So in, again, we're a very Canadian example, but there's a group called PAGSI, which is a group of Canadian societies that are sort of together as a society, which is kind of a cool. society sort of, of societies. It's a society of societies. That's right. Um, in science and engineering. So very broad, almost, you know, kind of akin to the Royal society sort of style. Um, but their goal really is to advocate for science. That is their reason, uh, for existing. And they host, uh, and one of the ways they do that is they host these speaker events that are called the bacon and eggheads meetings. They occur in Ottawa on Parliament Hill or nearby. And, uh, they have really great attendance by policymakers, members of parliament, senators, all of those different, uh, people who may have very, very broad backgrounds, not necessarily in science. And they bring in really high quality academics on a range of topics from, you know, astronauts to biologists, to chemists, people who have won the Nobel prize. Uh, I, I believe Art McDonald, who's the most recent Canadian Nobel laureate, well, not the most recent anymore. Apologies, Donna Strickland, uh, one more recently than that. Both have given these talks, yeah. uh, in uh, order to advocate uh, I know John Small has done. Uh, yeah, he gave one well. very recently. And very, very, I believe Donna Strickland also uh, gave one this year to this group. And and that's a great, you get all these people together for breakfast, hence the bacon part. Uh, and, you know, you get to tell them about your science and why it's valuable, not just your work, but the work. Uh, and that's a really strong role for advocacy at a broad level. Yeah. The the last thing I would say then is sometimes, you know, there are specific issues that have to be advocated for and scientific societies put themselves in a good place for that. So uh, not too, too long ago now, there was uh, the kind of Canadian push to uh, defund the experimental lakes area at the federal level, uh, which caused a lot of consternation and uh headache for many, many people and a whole range of societies did a lot of, including SEL very heavily because the limnology connection was so strong, did a lot of letter writing and phone calling and that sort of thing around that issue. So that can be a case where a society that really isn't, uh, mandated arena. Yeah. Isn't really mandated in politics to be weighing heavily. We don't, you know, do that. That's not what SEL does generally. But at that moment, it was because that's where we could use our voice um, as a collective. And it's one of those things where, you know, because it's done so rarely, all of a sudden that message carries more weight. You know, it's like, you know, the nuclear option. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think uh, there can be the realization that if you get scientists mad enough to march in the streets of Ottawa in large numbers... With, and uh, organized meetings. Plywood coffins. Yeah, exactly. And then one last question on uh, keeping you on the hot seat uh, before we kind of just go into more rambling kind of topics. Um, we, in like the run up to the show, we revealed that, uh, or it came up that you were a member of a large, a large number more societies and groups than I am. I'm basically an SEL member, and that's about it. And there's yep. no SEL-specific handshake that can get me out of speeding tickets or anything like that? There is not, uh, and that's the official 
word on that topic. Okay. <laughs> How about any of the other societies? Uh, Is there one you would recommend well, to join for speeding <laughs> ticket purposes or no, science purposes? No, I haven't found it yet. I do like to collect things in general. It's sort of part of my hobby. Uh, well, part of how I pick my hobbies, um, but not that I have found yet. That's unfortunate. That'd be some great keep words looking. of wisdom to share right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, you keep joining things and let yep. me know when you find a really good one. Perfect. We'll do. <laughs> we'll have a follow-up episode. Of course, it's audio, so I won't be able to show anyone the uh, handshake, but Adam will see it. A, a Twitter video. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. So, yeah. So, you know, as we delve into personal anecdotes a little bit here, what was the first uh, meeting or association meeting or society meeting that you attended that you can remember? Uh, so we'll talk about the pals meeting, which is sort of a, a, not really a true society in a minute, but something that's very close to both of us having host organized pals meetings before. Um, and now I think about it, uh, the 2009 SCL meeting is probably the first one that was a meeting specific to a whole society. So I'd been to other conferences. I went to like a Arctic change meeting, but that was sort of, uh, run by Arctic net though, a little broader than that related to IPY kind of stuff. So that one in the late part of December, 2008, an Arctic net meeting or 2009 SCL, which is only a few weeks later would be the first, uh, meetings that I went to. How about you? Okay. For me, it would have been you know what you got me thinking now? Uh, I'm pr- the first one I presented at uh, would have been an Aslo meeting in um, Savannah, Georgia in 2005. But I might have gone to the SCL meeting uh, that year earlier just just to see it. If it was a drive. This one I'm thinking of is in... Uh, it was in Windsor, maybe. Yeah. Um, then I would have, have like hopped in a car as a um, fairly early on in, in in my stuff to to see stuff like that. But the first one I really presented at was was an Aslo meeting, and then that was kind of interesting because um, I guess I had dipped my waters in paleo at that point in time, but I definitely. Um, did not at all consider myself a paleolimnologist at that point. My mm-hmm. master's had no paleo um, aspects to it whatsoever. Um, and going to an ASL meeting and then, you know, just the size of it kind of being blown away by however many concurrent sessions there were and, you know, the amount of marine stuff that I just wasn't fo- able to follow at all in many ways. Yeah, I've um, never actually been to an ASL meeting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I've been to one since, actually. I think uh, hmm. um, that that was the only one I've, I've been to. Uh, but I remember, you know, just being struck by the number of talks on, like, marine jellyfish or <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I guess, uh, what about the first paleo meeting then? The first uh, international paleo limnology symposium? So the first uh, would have been... Um, uh, in 2006 in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. And I would have gone and that would have been, you know, maybe a month before I actually started my PhD. Um, I basically, uh, 
at that point was making the transition to paleoimmunology. You know, I guess I'd known I was going to be joining the lab uh, for um, eight months or so. And so I had, I don't have any, what did I present? I probably presented a poster. I'd have to go back and double check. But I think of some, like I worked um, for the Ministry of the Environment in like a technical kind of research position, basically doing what amounted to a pilot project for my um, PhD project. And mm -hmm. so it was my meeting the lab um, uh, kind of experience. Um, and it, I had a lot of fun and it was, and then it was very different as well. Um, and, um, I guess, uh, this isn't necessarily where we're going to talk about it, but this, uh, totally fits in is just the interest of, you know, as well being massively broad in terms of, you know, limnology and marine. Uh, one of the things I really took away from, uh, my first IPA meeting was like when the focus is, you know, a tool set as opposed to a, I don't even know how you'd really talk about it, uh, describe it, um, you know, or the application of the tools, I guess. Um, and just seeing, you know, the breadth of tools. My interest has always been on fairly recent uh, history. So like post-industrial effects, like acid rain, mining impacts, things like that, climate change. Um, and then you're going in and seeing all these meetings and uh, all these talks on like Holocene level stuff and where they're talking about carbon dates for a large amount of the talk. And, yep. you know, you, you kind of look at the slides and you realize it's like, oh, each interval here is representing, you know, hundreds of years, yeah. you know, and the, it's like all, they, your whole project. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like what would have been, you know, encapsulated in one slide in this talk. And then it just like, you know, leads kind of, a little bit of imposter, imposter syndrome creep, crept in. It's like, can I really qualify as a paleomnologist? Like, A, I'm not going to do any of this stuff because um, it's just so alien in many ways. Um, and, you know, my and it's not where my interests lie in, uh, in, in many aspects of it. And it's just like, it was just it was just weird in many ways. Whereas you kind of expect that in, on the ASLO when you go, okay, yes, I, I have no interest in, you know, the migration patterns of whatever marine mammal, yep. um, but you expect it to be covered there. But the the first paleo meeting kind of threw me for a loop a little bit in in where you think it's going to be narrow, but it isn't. Yeah, no, that's an interesting uh, observation for sure. Um, and then, uh, so my first paleo meeting was the. Guadalajara meeting in 2009, end of 2009, which was supposed to be a little bit earlier because of I remember that uh, one well. H1 and there were several yeah. aspects of that one very well. Yeah. Uh, no, it was a great meeting, uh, including giving a talk, whether it was a mariachi band playing in the room uh, next to mine, which was a new experience. We were roommates for that meeting. We were roommates <laughs> for that meeting. That's right. Uh, that was a great meeting, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a really good point, especially when you move to a new location. So moving to central, well, still North America, but further to the South, uh, there was a lot of local paleolimnology there. So you get topics that are, or you get uh, presentations that are really, really different, but all using the same method. And, and when you get out of the Canadian kind of North American, Northern European perspective, there's not that 10,000 year, uh, post glacial historical perspective. So you can have really, really long records as you would find from 
researchers working in Africa and other locations that don't have this glacial history. So you get a real broad sense of uh, what paleo can do. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, I'm not knocking or saying, but it was definitely eye opening because I guess I went in thinking I knew what paleolimnology was, but then, you know, it was one of those things of like, uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And then yep. uh, there's levels, there's levels to the game of not knowing things. So going back to Duluth, uh, I think that was also a good segue, even though I added something in about Guadalajara related to what this PALS thing we've talked about is. So for the listeners uh, out there who are not uh, sort of our close colleagues in Ontario and Quebec, um, this may not and New be Brunswick. A, and New Brunswick now. Yeah. Who may not, this may not be as relevant. So feel That's free okay. to sign I up. I think, yeah, I th- well, it, it is relevant in terms of what we're talking about in terms of meetings. Um, but we've scaled it way down to, you know, we've gone from international to national and now we're talking about regional and then even more so regional student society, uh, student group. Uh, within um, paleoalumnology. And so the PALS is a student-run, a graduate student-run meeting um, focused on paleoalumnology that is really, um, I guess the official name is the Ontario-Quebec Paleoalumnology Symposium. So for our international listeners, uh, Ontario and Quebec are two provinces within Canada, or I guess you think of them as states within Canada if you're not familiar with the political makeup of Canada. But anyway... um, so we're talking um, fairly small regionally, and um, it I mean, grew bigger out than of, Europe, but oh yeah, no, no, <laughs> geographically bigger, but pop- population-wise, you know, um, and um, att- attendance-wise, we're talking meetings of like 50, 60 people. Uh, but um, one of the but one of the interesting things that was sort of identified is that in those two provinces, which geographically are huge, but population-wise, are, are a good part of Canada, but not enormous. There is a whole bunch of laboratories at different universities with people who focus primarily on paleolimnological methods. So many so that we probably could have our own meeting. Yeah. And this actually grew out of a, you know, um, beer session, pizza and beer session at uh, Duluth that I was kind of a fly on the wall at, but basically a couple of the, the professors, um, uh, notably uh, Roland Hall and Brent Wolf at uh, um, University of Waterloo, and I think Brent might have been very new at Laurier at that time, um, were basically leading a conversation with some other people around the table saying that, you know, IPA is awesome, you know, but for a master's student, you know, if you have a meeting of the International Association once every three years, a master student could start and finish, um, uh, you know, in between those meetings and never get the opportunity to go to a paleo-limnology focused meeting. And yes, going to the limnology meetings is great, like the SELs and ASLOs and SILs is all great, but there's, you know, something a little different where, you know, you say the word sediment core and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about or, or more specific than that, or, you know, what a you know a glue core that has to be no preamble like there's some value in meeting people in a room where everyone knows what you're talking about right off the get-go with no preamble yeah and it might be a good place to make liaisons to um, join another lab if you're looking to go to do a different degree somewhere you know because you don't have to explain what your method 
kind of background is. You were, came there as a paleolimnologist in training, uh, and you could easily um, transition between different groups. So a really good networking opportunity. Yeah, and so they listed off just on a napkin all the people and professors regionally that um, um, would potentially be interested in attending such a meeting and then go, you know, we've got a decent sized number here. And so the first PALS meeting, which basically is just, a, it's not an acronym, I don't know what you call it, um, but it stands for Paleo-Limnology Symposium. Um, I always so call it the uh, super friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it occurred in um, uh, summer of two, or spring of 2007. And, um, you know, Josh relayed, related, related some of his experiences on the executive of a real society. Um, my main um, association uh, interaction with meetings other than being an attendee was um, being part of the executive of, of this meeting, graduate student meeting that was run in, held in uh, Kingston at Queens in 2010. Um, and it's been going a, a while now and got to see firsthand, you know, some of the purpose of these societies. We, we touched on it earlier, but like the importance of institutional memory and keeping things going. Um, and, you know, like if it's a student run meeting, so it's not really much in the way of money. But in terms of, you know, when things like what is going on right now. Um, so it's been the PALS meeting has been running since 2007. Uh, there was not one in 2009 due to the swine flu. Like originally it was going to dodge the years of the IPA, but then IPA moved, so it didn't matter. But there still wasn't one in 2009. Yeah, and, um, then, and then it was then, decided that there would still be meetings held in the years of the international meeting because not everyone attended attends every international meeting for a variety of reasons. So now after that, they decided to hold one. We decided to hold one every year. Yeah, and there's a little bit of that gap of where you skip a year. And it's like, you know, you lose some of the people that went to the previous meeting, especially when it's student run, um, depending on the, la uh, you know, the some professors are more hands-on than others, but really it is um, totally student run. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of a fear if uh, you skip a year, um, you know, like momentum is lost. And uh, what will you do? And, yeah. you know, there's been a couple of hiccups along the way. Um, there have, yeah. We were supposed so to be at York a couple of years ago. Uh, um, and there was a big strike <laughs> from big strike. The, uh, some of the teaching fellows and graduate students. And so it quickly had to transition to the location it had been at the year before. So it moved back to Brock for a second year in a row. The only time it's been held twice in the same place in a row. Uh, but uh, And now we have... And now, obviously, it was supposed to be held at uh, uh, Mount Allison in New Brunswick, which is a third province within Canada. So we're extending. Yeah, the, the, I don't the, know what the word the, the first the range. taking pals on the road, and it uh, didn't didn't get to happen. It didn't happen this year. Of coronavirus. This year. So it's kind of funny. So it's you know, it's twelve, thirteen years, and you know, in that time. It's like effectively three cancellations due to unforeseen circumstances. So you yeah. can yeah. see the value of why these, you know, you'd have a society to make sure this keeps on going, but which isn't impossible in this student, or not impossible, but highly unlikely in like this kind of graduate student run uh, thing. But just, you know, an example of, you know, the micro scale giving you some insights into the macro scale, really. Yeah. it's And it is one of those really, uh, I don't know feel good kind of uh, 
things uh, around pals. It's definitely my favorite get together. Um, I've when was presented, the last time you actually presented anything at pals. What's that? When was the last time you actually presented something at pals? Oh my goodness. I don't know. <laughs> I think this years. might contribute to your enjoyment. Really. Certainly not since I, yeah, that is definitely true. Uh, <laughs> certainly not since I finished my degree uh, and probably a couple of years before that. So probably 2011, maybe was the last one I presented it in London. Okay. Um, but it, it, but it's one of those weird things in that, like, uh, Jenny, who we had on last week, uh, would have been her first meeting too, cause she was a new master's student. Uh, and now she's a faculty member and her students go to that. And Jesse Vermeer is a third kind of second generation pals organizer who has his own lab now and sends students to the meeting and Josh Gurick and who is at Mount A, uh, and would have held it this year. Uh, at least his students would have held it this year. Uh, so it is one of those interesting legacy and sort of memory things, and that'll continue to happen. Um, and it's a, or just a really good chance to get everyone together and really informal, which is the nice thing about it. Yeah. Cause it's definitely, um, something to be said for your first, especially, you know, as a new master's student or even an undergraduate student in some cases, um, you know, your first presentation to be in a friendly room because, you know, when you go to a big meeting in a big room full of, you know, quote unquote, big names, rock stars in some yep. cases, um, it, it can be incredibly intimidating. Yeah. Even if it's not actually, uh, it definitely feels it. Yeah. Like, and you know, part of it is being unfamiliar. Part of it is being a new experience. And another part is, you know, putting a lot of, the audience members that you have read their papers on a pedestal, you know, without realizing they're people too, in many ways. And we're in that same yeah. spot. And, and until you time. see them spill the whole coffee on themselves at the, uh, the first break, they can seem pretty intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that was a, a good dive into what is a scientific society. A few of the ones that might be familiar, uh, at least in acronym to some of our listeners, at least. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, oh, and yeah. we did have one correction that, that I saw cause Adam and I are looking at each other here and, uh, even though you can't see us and you could see him just like basically banging his head into the keyboard. Uh, would you like to set any records straight there? Uh, Adam? Yes. Uh, I guess so this would be the first, what, what's the word? Corrigium? No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, if it's not, if it's not done after the, not, if it isn't done after the fact, I think it's still the same episode. So we don't have to make an okay. addendum to it. So as opposed to mistakes that Josh has made in the, uh, or I guess he stands by his thing. Well, um, where he just fights with people on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, when I was referring earlier, we we're talking about the Royal Society and, uh, Sir Isaac Newton being on uh, a pound note that I vaguely remember because I didn't see it very often. I looked it up. I moved here uh, to Canada when I was a kid. And funnily enough, it was the one pound note. <laughs> and so I could say that I grew up in abject poverty and saw single pound notes very, very rarely. And it was more of a hey penny kind of guy. But that's not true. Uh, no, I'm going to blame it on, and now I'll, I'll look up the years and I'll be totally wrong again. Um, but it would have been around the, in my memory, around the transition from paper one pound notes to the one pound coins around the same time. And that is why it was a rare note, not because it was incredibly valuable Perfect. and something to be treasured Right <laughs> for Isaac Newton's hair. Exactly. So there we go. We've set the record straight on that one. <laughs> 
And then yeah. the last thing that Adam hinted at there, a little, uh, it's not really in the mailbag so much as uh, an exchange on We got Twitter. feedback. We, we did feedback. get feedback though, yeah. People are listening. Yes, that's also. right. Not only that, I think this person was listening for a second time to that episode because <laughs> I'm pretty sure he, he listened to it when it first came out. Uh, Professor Roberto Quinlan, who's also at York University, but in a different department from me, uh, made note that uh, in the bioindicators episode, I um, made it seem that an indicator that you needed to use lots and lots of sediment for was not a valuable... Five, five or six grams wet. Yeah, five or six grams was wet was not word. a valuable uh, paleolimnological indicator. And I, and I think him and... I, he was calling out for the whole coronamid community, though I don't think anyone else engaged with him on it. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna walk that back? Are you gonna double down? I will. I'll walk it back. As much as I <laughs> uh, I like a good internet fight, I agree that there are some things, including some of the contaminant work that I've done, that just eat the sediment away and are very okay. valuable. Okay. Um, so so uh, I wasn't thinking about that, and so Roberto, I apologize profusely to you and the entire coronamid community. You are very valuable, and you can use as much sediment as you so choose. Um, <laughs> um, and thanks yeah, for and listening. Keep it up. Yeah, <laughs> because I think thanks you're for half listening. of our listens. <laughs> uh, you know, yes. Uh, and if you have any comments that you would like to share with us um, and potentially get uh, pushback from Josh about um, things that he would like to double down on in the future, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at... Core Ideas Paleo. And you can also send us email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, our show notes and all our past episodes are available on our website at coreideas.ajezyorski.ca. And Ajezyorski is basically my name, but A J E Z I O R S K I. And uh, until then, thank you for listening. And hopefully, uh, you know. You're better prepared for your days among the Illuminati after listening to this episode. Sounds good. And we will catch you next time. Uh, so take care out there. Mm -hmm.